volvieron. Los McNugget Buddies are back at McDonald's. Y ahora tienen un nuevo look, diseñado por el streetwear designer Kerwin Frost. Cada buddy tiene su propio vibe, pero cuando el squad está completo, se ven fire. Complete your buddy squad ordenando the Kerwin Frost Box. Cada caja incluye un buddy, tu elección de una Big Mac o unos Timpy's Chicken McNuggets, papitas medianas y un refresco mediano. Disponible desde el 11 de diciembre. Para pa pa pa. En McDonald's participantes por tiempo limitado hasta agotar existencias. Whether you're buying a new car, a used car, or refinancing your current car, FedChoice Federal Credit Union could help save you money. FedChoice makes buying a car so easy that you can do everything right from your smartphone or on a computer. Become a member today and you can take advantage of their great rates and financing options. Find out more at FedChoice.org. That's FedChoice.org. Membership open to federal employees including contractors and their families. FedChoice Federal Credit Union insured by NCUA. From the studios of Fox 5 in Washington, D.C., you are on the Hill. Tom Fitzgerald here with you. And this time on the Hill, we are joined with by the U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of Virginia, Zachary Terwilliger. He has been leading an effort in the Commonwealth to fight the scourge of opioid abuse, and we are happy to welcome here back for your second appearance on the Hill. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Fitz. Great to be back with you. Uh, the last time you were here, we talked about a, a range of issues, and this week we wanted to focus on, on opioids. Uh, during the television program, we were talking about when you look at the, you know, the tenures of U.S. attorneys, y you tend to think about some of the focus and, and what their legacy is when they are in those jobs. You think about Rudolph Giuliani and his, and his time as U.S. attorney in New York City. You talk, think about his organized crime uh, uh, prosecutions. You look at Christ Christie when he was in the state of New Jersey, focused in a lot of government and municipal corruption. Uh, you've quickly built a, a, a legacy here in, in your short time on the job of, of focusing in on, on the opioid crisis. And it's something that has touched so many lives that I think maybe even outside of the Eastern District of Virginia, what you're doing makes an impact on a lot of people's lives, even if they don't live in the territories which you're in charge of. Why did this hit as hard as it did for you, and why did you decide to make this such a focus of your time in this job? Well, thank you, Fitz. I mean, part of the... Um one of the first aspects of my job was to go out and meet with state and local law enforcement. And that's what I was hearing from them. I was hearing, look, we have individuals dying in the streets. And as you touched on indiscriminately, folks um, from all across different socioeconomic backgrounds, all across you know racial backgrounds, um, this was killing people. And so one of my jobs is to protect public safety. And so we try to stop bank robbers. We try to stop you know gang members. We enforce the law against white collar criminals. But if you have people dying, that gets your attention really really quickly and so that's why I focused on this and I went out and hired some experts to come in two of my first hires were former chiefs of staff at the DEA who already knew nationally what we were doing so with their help we've put together a marquee anti-opioid anti-fentanyl program focused on fentanyl from China drugs being uh, sold on the dark web dirty doctors heroin um, and, and fentanyl that's coming through the mail even when you go down that list like you just did what's clear then jumps out at you right away is how many different ways this is coming at us whether it's through drug dealers or whether it's through doctors who are not right is, is that what's different about what we're facing right now not just the fatal nature of this particular drug 
but how many different ways you need to defend against the ways that are coming in. I think that's exactly right. I refer to it as a triple-headed monster. You know, you've got illicit fentanyl being pressed into pills that people think are legitimate, drugs, your typical heroin dealing, and then you have um, your uh, your diverted pills from doctors. So you're absolutely right. You've got this, this triple-headed monster that we're fighting in. The low-hanging fruit a lot of times are the dirty doctors and the pill mills. Well, once you solve that problem and some of the pills dry up, now we've got pills that are being pressed with fentanyl. So someone takes that oxycodone pill that they're used to taking in a certain amount. This one is non-legitimate. It's illicit, and it's just fentanyl with baking soda or something, and they die. When these drugs first entered the market, the idea was that this was going to be a new kind of painkiller, that this yeah. was going to be an improvement for pain management. For, for a lot of people. How did we get to this point? You know, that's a good question. I've, I've read a lot of different theories, and, and at this point, you know, talking from my own personal experience, because I don't want to get sideways with what others have, have said um, for the administration, but one of the things I noticed is the way we used to rate your hospital stay experience, the way we used to rate doctors was how do they do on pain management? And so no one, my understanding is no one wanted to get a bad rating that said, I asked for pain medication, I stayed in bed for a number of you know hours before they would give me my next dose, so I don't want to go to back to such and such trauma care center, such and such hospital. So I think that's some of it. Um, I think the other piece was we weren't doing a good enough job monitoring the amount uh, that we are allowed to be prescribed and the amounts that were being prescribed. So through the pres prescription monitoring program, we now can look and see where the outliers are. Like, why is this one doctor in the same zip code prescribing six times more than the doctor down the street? Well, maybe they run a uh, end-of-life cancer palliative center. Okay, there's a good explanation. But if it's just a pain clinic seeing average patients, that's a problem. And that wasn't being done before. That was just basically up to the doctor's own Hippocratic oath and allegiance to the, 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 the task that they've gone under in pursuing a, a career in the field of medicine they were the arbitrators and the deciders of who got what i assume there was oversight i just don't think we are paying close attention a close enough attention and it may have been that like so many things um you know you don't start paying attention until it's almost too late is it just the doctor's or do the pharmaceutical companies themselves hold some responsibility? So we've got some ongoing litigation, not in my district, but other districts where they're holding the um, pharmaceutical companies accountable. And um, I, I don't want to speak for them because it's ongoing, but I do think it makes a lot of sense to look at, okay, what did they know? When did they know it? And um, what was done once they knew there was a problem? This was the uh, most common form of unnatural death since 2013. Yeah. Um, this has been a wildfire that has spread across the country, not just in the Eastern District of Virginia. W when you came into the job, you said you brought these you know, prosecutors in to look at it. Was, was the task, as you understood it, bigger than you expected and harder to get your arms around than maybe you had had in previous things that you tried to tackle? Yeah, I mean, that, yeah, if you look at, say, marijuana or you look at cocaine, um, there are things you can do from an interdiction front. The difference with fentanyl and the opioid crisis is you're not having as many cocaine overdoses. So while you're fighting it, um, you're looking for improvement in terms of prosecution numbers. You're looking for improvement in terms of, you know, the the cost on the street. You want to see the cost of the drug going up because that means you're squeezing supply. You lose sight of all of that when you have people, as we just heard, like Caitlin Weems dying. And so for me, that was the biggest 
takeaway was we've got to stop the deaths. And I am so proud to, and I'm not taking credit for this in any way, shape, or form, but for the first time in a decade, we saw the deaths in Virginia go down. Northern Virginia, 20%. In Fairfax County, massive county, large population, 25% decrease in opioid deaths. So let's talk about that. So what's happened now? Is it is the message getting across to the people who are, are using these drugs, or is the message getting across to the people who are distributing these drugs, or both? I think it's both, um, and one of the things I think we need to, this is tremendous news. I mean, 26 more people are alive today in, in 2018, uh, from 2017 to 2018, than there were the year before in Fairfax County. That's tremendous. The danger is, I think we also need to be focusing on the overdose numbers, because now you have first responders, federal agents, teachers armed with anti-opioids, whether it's Narcan or Naloxone, and that is going to reverse some things that otherwise would have been deaths. I want to see those overdoses go down. But if if given a choice, um, I want to make sure we are saving lives first and foremost, then we'll, then we'll get the treatment, then we'll uh, prosecute the dealers. You mentioned Carolyn Williams a moment ago. Uh, she was a topic of discussion on the television program uh, today, and her daughter, Caitlin, died at the age of 21. Uh, Caitlin was a student athlete and was prescribed um, a prescription pain medication to deal with a sports injury she had. Is that the common route that you see of a people who wind up getting addicted to this and are at risk of having a fentanyl death that somebody just injured themselves and are given this and that starts them down the road this isn't your typical stereotypical idea that people have of, of drug abuse is it that's right and i i do think i don't have enough actual data to know if it's common or the most prevalent i think you have sure seems like we hear it a lot you hear it yeah. a lot and i think because those those deaths, while every death is tragic, someone who wasn't chemically dependent already, who hadn't gotten crosswise with the law, hadn't been battling addiction for five, ten years, where folks knew, look, this might be a possibility, but someone who is frankly in the prime of their life, um, who is, you know, on the right path, so to speak, you know, excelling academically, athletically, um, as, as a, a thriving human being, and that person being taken away, I think that's harder to wrap your head around, and as a result, it probably gets more attention. I, I've certainly seen a lot of cases like that, veterans coming back from the war um, who have very substantial injuries, um, you know, as a result of their service. Uh, I think that's another population that um, I'm very concerned about because you have the VA and others giving them pain medication, which they need, um, but what monitoring is being done, what counseling is going along with it, what follow-ups are we doing to make sure we're not setting somebody up for a, a very dark path. Do you have the resources you need to tackle this job? Because it sounds like an enormous job. We, I think ho the whole of government approach is absolutely what's necessary. So just take the postal inspectors, for example. We can't have fentanyl going through the mail from China unchecked being distributed in the United States. The, the U.S. Postal Service cannot become the main drug courier. So when you look at folks like the postal inspectors who can open mail, you look at the folks who are at the Customs and Border Protection who look at all the parcels coming in, um, you look at what the DEA is doing. You look at what the FBI is doing with their J code, where they're going onto those online marking places and shutting them down. Look, we always could use more money. Um, I'd love to hire another 10 prosecutors, and I think we'd have the cases to support them. Um, have we been supported? Yes. 
Can we do more with more? Yes. Um, but I think the good news is this is it has been made clear by this administration, this Department of Justice, that this is a huge priority. And as a result, um, we do feel as though if we're having to pull resources away from other areas, we're being absolutely supported in our anti-opioid work. Uh, the administration, for its part, has talked about opioids a lot since they um, entered the White House. Um, obviously, this is a problem of the, that is on a national scope. But but here in our area, uh, we have seen families torn apart uh, by this. Professionally, is there a level of satisfaction to knowing that the work you're doing has can't bring anybody back who's been lost for this, but might keep somebody with us that, that would be at risk of losing their lives had you not pursued these prosecutions? I'm not at that place yet, Fitz. No. I... Um Maybe one day we'll get there. I just, when you meet the, the, the Weemses and there's many families like that that I've come in contact with, and I don't, I don't feel like we've done enough by them or for them yet. Um, we were in this place with human trafficking about six years ago where I think we are now with the opioids. And I can tell you now that the whole entire DMV area understands human trafficking. You can't turn a corner without seeing something regarding anti-human trafficking. Mm -hmm. That's where I want to get on opioids. And perhaps when we get to that place, um, I'll, I'll be ready to feel better about what we're doing. What changed in the conversation, though? Because as we mentioned, you know, there always was this kind of idea of, you know, what type of person a drug addict is. And when you look at, you know, a lot of the people who we, we talk about in regards to opioids, they don't fit that that stereotypical. So are we at the point right now where, you know, there was a time in this country, I remember when I was a young man, that drunk driving was looked at as something that, you know, okay, it happens. He didn't mean it or she didn't mean it. And, you know, it happens. In 2019, that is not how you look at drunk driving. Are, are we in that transition of thought now when it comes to opioid that, um, this is something that is preventable and can be stopped and must be fought? I think we are. I mean, take just, you know, some of the area outside of Northern Virginia, and you just go right over that line into West Virginia. I mean, one of the areas hardest hit by this is Appalachia. And I think that's an area that generally gets very little attention. Um, and so now that we are in Appalachia and people know that there, Pennsylvania, all along sort of the Northeast Corridor as well up in the mountains, that they're getting the attention and the resources they need in terms of strike forces, grant money. Um, I do think we are in that place where, to take your analogy, the Mothers Against Drunk Driving, you know, with the ribbon campaign, we are getting there when it comes to opioids. And I think everybody knows, as especially as a parent myself, you know, if my child goes in for a procedure, I want to know exactly what's prescribed and I'm going to monitor it very closely. You talked about resources a little bit earlier um obviously this doesn't happen in a vacuum what the u.s attorney's office in the eastern district of virginia is connected to what the u.s postal inspectors do what the drug enforcement agencies do how closely do you all work together and how large of a, of a web is that of agencies that you have to deal with to make this work it's extremely large um there's a civil component to this as well we talk a lot about the criminal side but we recently prosecuted a case um, called farm fresh where it was large pharmacy down in the hampton roads area that wasn't keeping accurate books and records so they couldn't account for the theft of their opioids so it it's everybody um and so they we sued them um as the as the government so i we have opioid coordinating meetings and it's not just even in the eastern district of Virginia, 
Virginia. Take that as the example. We have an opioid strategy in Tidewater, Richmond, and Northern Virginia because there's different problems that are presenting in each one. Uh, but postal inspectors, Customs and Border Protection, FBI, DEA, um, uh, and then our state and local counterparts, um, the labs that we use in Virginia, as well as all of our prevention efforts through a variety of nonprofits. You mentioned China is one of the routes um, where a lot of this material is coming from. Um, clearly, we've known for some time that uh, regions like Afghanistan are the heart of the of the opioid industry. Does that say, you know, illicit drug Silk Road still exist? from Afghanistan through China into the United States. Is that where this is coming from? Yeah, so it's interesting. We're actually seeing, um, I mean, heroin and, and, and opiates made organically from poppy, which uh, was grown, I believe, you know, they call it the Hindu Kush, that area. Um, so you would see a lot of Afghani-grown um, poppy, which then would turn into opium. At least from what I'm seeing in Northern Virginia, one of our most dangerous things are the completely um, chemically non-organic produced um, fentanyl that's made in a lab. And it's a lot cheaper to mix some chemicals together and ship them than to just actually grow a crop, as, <laughs> as we all know. That's what we're seeing more than the Afghani-grown um, opioids, at least in this area, through my anecdotal evidence. And you look back at the 80s with the cocaine epidemic. Yes. There seemed to be a, a, a litany of the dealers back then wanting to keep their customers on the hook yeah. so they keep coming back. That's different with the opioid crisis. They don't seem to care that these people are losing their lives. It's interesting you say that, and I think that comes to something we talked about earlier this morning, how cheap fentanyl is and its potency. I mean, in general, the more potent a organic product is, say, you know, coca, a cocaine made from mm -hmm. coca leaves, that means it hasn't been, the street term is stepped on so many times. So you get it pure coming out of uh, Colombia, but then dealers at various levels will mix it with other substances, so it goes farther, you know? Um, they'll, they'll step on it, put baking soda in it, and then, you know, by the time it hits the street, you know, maybe it's 50% or 40% and someone's pocketing that profit. The fentanyl, because it's like eyedroppers amount worth, you don't have that issue. Um, you know, I i haven't talked to a, a fentanyl dealer um, to, to figure out what's going on, but mm -hmm. we, we did have a case. Um, it was a case of Michelle Best down in um, Hampton Roads, and she, during the course of a fentanyl distribution conspiracy, one of her drug runners or the people actually pushing the stuff on the street said, you know, to the boss, hey, I think we got a hot batch somebody's dead, you know, overdose, what do you want us to do? Her response, business as usual. So that, that would be a, an example of your point. You know, and talking to some first responders, what, what's, you know, if this could get any worse, here's how it gets worse. You have some cases, a lot of cases now, where first responders who come upon some of these victims yeah. who are trying in their jobs to save their lives, they wind up at risk. And yes. sometimes exposed to this fentanyl as well, putting the lives of the first responders. That's new. Yeah. Uh, we hadn't had a case before where simply somebody in the emergency services area, whether it's a you know somebody on an ambulance or a firefighter or a police officer, they're putting their lives literally at risk because of the possibility of fentanyl contamination. I'm so glad you mentioned that. As, as you know, we're about two weeks away from police week, and you'll yeah. start to see some events where we honor the fallen um, officers and first responders. And you're absolutely right. I think the only thing that would be slightly like this were some of the folks who'd go in and bust meth labs, but then you knew what you were walking into. You could put on a hazmat suit, yeah. and you could take precautions. You're absolutely right. You pull someone over. Um, we had an individual we just sentenced to had injected fentanyl in the car, um, passed 
passed out behind the wheel, ran off the road. And so someone is coming upon that. And if that's friable, if it's in the air, we have had multiple officers have to treat themselves with their own Narcan to save their own lives. Uh, Narcan is something that uh, when it first started appearing uh, in the hands of police officers and emergency responders, uh, they were running out of yes a, a lot. Where are we in getting Norcan into the hands of the people who need it to respond to these areas? And does this need to go out into a wider network? Restaurants, you know, we have defibrillators in airports. Yeah, twenty years ago, you didn't think about using them to save somebody from a heart attack. Now we do. Uh, is the availability of Norcan still a problem as it was? That's probably a better question to be yeah. answered by my state and local law counterparts. What I have right. observed, however, is it's much more widely disseminated. My guess is it's almost like when you know you start to run out of flu shots. You, yeah. you everybody wants it, right. and there's a little bit of a backlog. I do get the sense that the supply is there now. I know that, for example, ATF agents who used to not carry it now carry it, mm-hmm. um, and just all the time so i assume our supply is there as far as other places to put it um look my my thought would be until we get our arms completely wrapped around this epidemic the more the better um now i know there are certain uh areas you know these um uh, safe injection sites and things where it can get a little bit um you if you make it so easy for people to use narcotics and you're ready to just quote bring them back to life um you know maybe you know, I know that's a harm reduction strategy, but that's something I'd really want to think hard about. When you talk to your colleagues in the other U.S. attorney's offices around the country, are they faced with the same thing you're faced with? Do you all talk to each other about similarities or differences in the how you're dealing with the opioid crisis? We do. And it's interesting. You know, west of the Mississippi, you see still more methamphetamine, um, or at least the last time I spoke with my colleagues out there in the last month, they're still seeing more methamphetamine than they are opioids. For whatever reason, we really are hit uh, hardest here in Appalachia and up and down the East Coast. Um, not sure exactly why that is. Maybe more open space allows for there to be more clandestine meth labs or or sometimes you just have people who get used to a certain narcotic. But mm-hmm. along here, we certainly have a, a denser population and as a result, more people theoretically who could have been prescribed medication. We also have a tremendous number of veterans here in this area um, and you have individuals who are engaged in sports or in life. And so I, I, I don't know exactly why it is sort of geographically oriented this this area. But to directly answer your question, my colleagues in West Virginia, my colleagues colleagues in Kentucky, Ohio, Vermont, um, New Hampshire, um, absolutely, they're facing the exact same thing. It's a massive effort you've undertaken, um, but it's going to make a massive uh, difference in a lot of people's lives. So those that you're going to be able to uh, save uh, moving forward and obviously uh, bring comfort to the people who have lost loved ones to see that there's some effort being made on this fight. Well, I can't thank you enough, both on your show this morning and on your podcast, for dedicating so much of your airtime. It's critical this message gets out there. So thanks for what you're doing. All right. Zachary Tewiller is the U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of Virginia. You've been listening to the On the Hill podcast here from Fox 5 in Washington, D.C. From the studios of Fox 5, I'm Tom Fitzgerald. We thank you for joining us this time. We'll see you next time on the Hill. Volvieron. Los McNugget Buddies are back at McDonald's. Y ahora tienen un nuevo look, diseñado por el streetwear designer Kerwin Frost. Cada buddy tiene su propio vibe, pero cuando el squad está completo, se ven fire. Complete your buddy squad ordenando the Kerwin Frost box. Cada caja incluye un buddy, tu elección de una Big Mac o unos 10-piece Chicken McNuggets, papitas medianas y un refresco mediano. Disponible desde el 11 de diciembre. Para pa pa pa. En McDonald's participantes por tiempo limitado hasta agotar existencias.